and we are currently in the chapter of Sifatul Salah, dealing with the description of the Salah. So last week we had a lengthy hadith, um, which dealt with a number of various aspects of the Salah. Today the, we continue, and the first three hadith that's mentioned in the book all deals with the same issue, which is the issue of Raf'ul uh, Yadayn. Right, so the first hadith reads from Ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يرفع يديه حذو منكبيه إذا افتتح الصلاة وإذا كبر للركوع وإذا رفع رأسه من الركوع. حديث البخاري المسلم عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله عنهما he says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to raise his hands to his shoulders up until his shoulders إذا افتتح الصلاة when he started the salah or when he opened the salah. وَإِذَا كَبَّرَ لِلْرُكُوعِ And when he did takbir for the ruku' And when he raised his head from the, the ruku' So those are three things that are mentioned in the, in the first hadith The second hadith is from Abi Humaydin in Abu Dawood The book of Abu Dawood يَرْفَعُ يَدَيْهِ حَتَّى يُحَاذِي بِهِمَا مَنْكِبَيْهِ ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ That he raised his hands up until his shoulders and then he did the takbir. And in Sahih Muslim, from Malik ibn Huwairith, similar to the hadith, similar to the hadith ibn Umar, but he said, That he raised his hands until they reached the top of his ears. Until they reached the top of his ears. Those are the three hadith that Ibn Hajar has mentioned, that we will explain uh, shortly, inshaAllah. So, firstly, he raised his hands in line with his, his shoulders, right? So, meaning when he did the raising of the hands, what do we mean by raising of the hands? Like the takbiratul ihram, every Muslim, this is agreed upon by all scholars, that there must be a takbiratul ihram, and we have to raise the hands. But what we find from the hadith is, there's a specific way to raise the hands. And what we find is, many people... They don't actually follow the sunnah when raising the hands. So they just raise the hands. You see this sometimes. You see touching of the ears sometimes. You see about the head sometimes. You see all type of, you know, different ways because they have not been taught the specific way that the Prophet ﷺ raised his hands. So this hadith shows us to where he raised his hands. And the first hadith says he raised it in line with his, with his shoulders. So as he stood, you could say the, the, the tips of his fingers were in line with his shoulders. And obviously the palms are facing the front. The palms are facing the qibla, along with the rest of your body, and his fingers were over here in line with his shoulders. Understand? This is the first point of the hadith. When he opened the salah, meaning, and he started, Allahu Akbar. Like this, this is what he did. This hadith is in Bukhari and, and Muslim. And when he did the takbir for ruku', so which means he obviously recited a surah, surah Fatiha, and then another surah, 
And as he said that that before ruku', he did not say Allahu Akbar and go down. Rather, he raised the hands when he said Allahu Akbar and then he went down. Understand this point? So as you finish, وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٌ Allahu Akbar. And he raised the hands and he went down into, into ruku'. Understand? And then the hadith says, and when he raised his head from the ruku', meaning you are in, in ruku', subhana rabbi al-azim, and as you come up, sami allahu liman hamidah, he raised the hands again, again for a, for a third time. Right? He raised his hands then again for a third time. And this is what the hadith over here says. So, Ibn Uthaymi then goes into the benefits of this hadith. He goes into the benefits of the hadith. The first benefit that he mentions is that it is permissible for those who are praying behind the imam to look at the imam. He says it's permissible for those who are praying behind the imam to look at the imam. And now he says that on this issue, yani is, this, is this an actual point? Can we, can we take this from this hadith? He says, we take it from this hadith. Even though it hasn't been mentioned clearly by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or from Ibn Umar. Meaning they haven't said it's, it's the simple must. This is derived from the hadith. Right? But we look at a number of other hadith. For example, um, the Sahaba, when they were asked, you know, how, did, how do you know what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to recite? Or when he was reciting? They would say, we knew that by the movement of his beard. This is referring to the Salah. So at times when they knew he was reading something, they could see it from the movement of his beard. And at that time, the Sahaba and the Prophet their beards were big. So if you stood behind him, you could see you know, the, the beard coming out on the side here from the cheeks. Are you with me? And they could see the movement as he was moving his lips and reciting. The beard was also moving. Right? The hadith is in Bukhari. So this proves that they, there was times when they looked at him in the, in the salah. Likewise, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he made salah one day on the mimbar. He made salah on the mimbar and the rest played behind him. And he said, I did this. Why? So that people can learn the salah from me. How are they going to learn the salah? Except that they are watching him. Except that they must have been watching him. So these two and your other hadith, these two hadith, what do they show us? They show us that at times it's permissible for those praying behind the imam to look at the imam in the salah. Does this apply to any imam? But does this apply to certain imams only? Any imam or certain imams? We definitely would apply to the Prophet because he is the, the leader and the role model to be followed. Ibn Uthaymi rahimahullah, he says, firstly, it only applies to those who are making salah behind and around the imam. Not those who are standing far away. Because we don't want someone far away and he's moving his head and he's shifting his body to be looking at. If you are in within you know, looking distance and just by moving your eyes, you can sort of let your eyes fall on the imam to see what he is doing, then this is permissible. But the moment you are away at the back, it's impossible. Or you are far to the right or far to the left. 
For you to look at the Imam, now what, what has to happen? You now have to move your head or move your body. And this becomes problematic because this is also not permissible in the Salah. We have to pray with khushur, that focus and concentration, facing the Qibla and so forth. Secondly, he says, it has to be an Imam that is known for, number one, having knowledge. Being a person who, who has knowledge of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And secondly, he has to be a person who is known for being a person who implements the Sunnah. So you could be praying behind somebody, and you know this guy hasn't studied. Is your eye going to be on this, this person? It should not be on this person. Why? What benefit are you going to take from this person? Secondly, if you are praying behind someone who is not known to follow the Sunnah, i.e. he only follows what he's been taught, what has been passed down. So is this someone you want to be watching in the Salah? No. If there's a person that you know and you trust, that this person knows the Sunnah and he implements the Sunnah, this is the type of Imam that you are allowed and that you are in a way encouraged to look at at times. This doesn't mean you analyze his Salah the whole way through and you don't focus on your own Salah. But at times you can, you know, maybe in certain parts of the Salah, I wonder where the Sheikh puts his hands. And you just have a look. You understand? And then, it, you know, from there you can think, okay, why did the Sheikh put his hands there? Or why did he do this with his finger? Or why did he raise his hands? Or why did he not raise his hands? And... You can then ask him and say, I noticed you did not raise your... And from there you have learned something. From there you now start to gain knowledge and so forth. So we don't say that it's completely permissible for those praying behind the imam to look at the imam. Rather they are... It's tafsir. You know, there's some details to the issue. At times it's permissible and at times it's not permissible. So as we said, you have to be close to the imam without moving around. Secondly... The imam must be someone that is, you know, that, that should be followed. I.e. that you know this person is, knows, he studied the sunnah and he's a person who implements the sunnah. And you can take benefit from his salah. But then you can take glances at him. Glance at him and focus back on your salah. And afterwards you can approach him and ask him, I noticed this, why was this? And I noticed that, can you explain this to me? And like this we can take knowledge from this and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Um, <clears throat> another benefit from the hadith is that we raise the hands up until the, the shoulders, as the first hadith mentioned. We raise the hands to the shoulders. The other hadith that we mentioned, the third one said, where? To the top of the ears. To the top of the ears. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. And we have another hadith which mentions, Yuhadi bihima shihmata udunay u shahmata udunay. Where he raised his hands in line with his earlobes. Earlobes. So we've got three ahadith that speaks about where the Prophet raised his hands towards. The first one is to the shoulders. Then we've got the earlobes and then we've got the top of the ears. Understand? So, how do we implement this? What we say is, like we say all the time with, with, with these type of examples, at times you raise it like this, at times you raise it like that, and at times you raise it to the earlobes. All three have been narrated from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So you try and mix it, you know, mix them up. So you're acting upon all of the narrations. You're acting upon all of the sunnah now. But it's like this, or like that, or like this. This is how we raise the hands 
according to the sunnah of the Prophet Not like this, not like this, not like that. These things have not been narrated. And this now goes against the sunnah. So what we find is these ahadith are very specific and very clear that the way the Prophet made salah. It's upon us to learn and implement and not to do something that is different. Because now you are clearly opposing the ahadith and that becomes, then that becomes a bit of an issue. When, when you know the hadith says this and you decide to do something else, or you just prefer to do something else, then it becomes a major issue. Now it can become a matter of belief. You know, what is your belief towards the Prophet towards the Sunnah, your respect towards the Sunnah, and so forth. Um, so above the head, you know, all these things that you, that you might see from people, yes, most of the time it's from ignorance of people that haven't been taught. But, you know, as long as we know the Sunnah, we should be implementing um, the Sunnah. Another benefit the Sheikh mentions is that it is that we should raise the hands when doing Takbiratul Ihram. This is, I think, good to all schools of thought. Right? The second time is before the Rukur. The third time is coming up from the Rukur. Those three are the views of the of Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah as well, as found in this hadith. Right? There is a fourth occasion when we raise the hands, which is found in another hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar, which is authentic, wherein he raised the hands when coming up from the first tashahud. Coming up from the first tashahud. Right? This is now the fourth time when it is a sunnah to raise the hands. So you are in the tahiyat. You read the tahiyat complete and you come up. When you come up and as you're standing, it's a sunnah to then raise the hands and then put the hands back on the chest. Understand? This is the fourth time. And you know the scholars, this, what is the wisdom in this? Some of them said that when you come up on the second tahiyat, it's as if you are starting a fresh now. A new set of, of units, you know, it's as if you are starting afresh. It's as if the salah is taking on a different section, you know, and so you raise the hands again. But Allah knows best as to why exactly this was done by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's another hadith that has not been mentioned in this book. Okay. You understand? So initially I read what's mentioned in the book, and now in the commentary I can add and say there is another narration. Wherein the same companion mentions a fourth time when he raised the hands. Okay. You understand? So I mentioned that Imam al-Shafi'i said three. Right? So the Hanbalis, they say four. Based on this narration. Right? Also, a latter-day famous Shafi'i scholar was Imam al-Nawawi. We've all heard of him. Forty Hadith Imam al-Nawawi. He did many books. And he's a major pillar of the Shafi'i Madhab. So in one of his books, he says, he brings this narration and he says, had Imam Shafi'i known this hadith, his view would have also been full. Understand this? Had he known this narration of Ibn Umar, he would have also said there should be four times we raise the hands and not just three. And that should be our approach to everything. That the Imams did not know everything. As great as the knowledge was and as vast as it was, they did not have every hadith in front of them. There were things that escaped them. They made a mistake here and there. So our duty is to follow the Quran and the Sunnah. By studying the works of the scholars. 
but by taking what we find to be the strongest according to the Quran and the Sunnah. So in this case, this is a clear issue. The Ahadith says four. If one of the Imams says once, like Imam Abu Hanifa, only once he raises the hands. So the Hanafis, you will never see them raising their hands. But what do we follow? Do we now take because Abu Hanifa said it? Rather, we have the Ahadith of the Prophet where he did not do that. Rather, he raised the hands at least four times in the Salah. And that is what we follow. Because we are instructed to follow him. And not any other person, uh, basically. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Okay, so four times we raise the hands, takbiratul ihram, before the ruku', coming up from the ruku', and then coming up from the first tashahud. After the first tahiyat, as we call it, we come right up, raise the hands, and then we start the fatiha. And then we start. That would basically be the starting the third rakah. Correct. Starting the third rakah all the time. So in Fajr, this will not happen. Only in Maghrib and uh, the four rakah prayers. Sayyib Ibn Uthaymin then says that if a person who enters the Salah and the Imam is in Ruku' the Imam is in Ruku' and now you join the Salah so as we join what do we need to do? It's Takbiratul Ihram to open the Salah to start the Salah right? The Imam is in Ruku' our aim is to get to the Ruku' so we get the Raka' if you miss the Ruku' you miss the Raka' right? So the first thing that we do is we say the takbiratul ihram. So you join the saf, Allahu Akbar. The question is, is there another takbir before you go down as usual or do you just suffice with one and you kind of combine between the two? You understand? Um, he says there are two times that we have to say the takbir because the first is to open the salah and the second is to get into the Next part of the of the salah, right? So this is the best option. You start the salah, Allahu Akbar, and you do it immediately. You go back and Allahu Akbar, and you go into the ruku. So you will not recite anything, because the Imam has already passed the, the, the phase of recitation. But you are catching the ruku because you will get, you know, the part of the ruku that that's still valid, basically, or the rak'ah that is still valid. So you say Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar and we go down into the, the Ruku' and as long as the Imam is still in the Ruku' you are now within that Raka'ah with him Tayyip and then he said what if a person comes and he's late meaning he's missed some Raka'at right in Arabic we say Masbuk he's late right and he gets the third Raka'ah of the Salah let's say it's Dhuhr Okay, so the Imam is in the third rak'ah now. He's done one, he's two, he's in the third. Okay, so you go up to the third and in the fourth you compete with him. So you've got two rak'ah left, correct? Right? When you stand up, you are standing up from the, the tahiyyat position. The Imam will make salam and then you will stand up. So when you stand up, right, to complete your third and your fourth Raka'at, or even just your fourth raka'at, for example. Right? Do you then raise the hands or not? Because this becomes this way becomes a bit of an issue. If we say it's after the first tashahud, that's easy. 
right? But for the latecomer, it becomes a bit more complicated. Because now the Imam has done the first Tashahud already, you have now joined after that. So you've made the Tashahud with him, and now you're making perhaps another Tashahud with him, but now is the first time that you are standing up, which maybe that's your first Tashahud, but it's his second Tashahud. Are you with me? Do we now raise the hands again when we stand up? Or do we not? Right? And Yah ibn Uthaymin basically says that to him this issue is broad in scope. Because it has not been narrated. This type of incident has not been narrated. So to say yes you do and to say yes you don't, there may be some others who say you don't. And there may be others who say you do. The Sheikh says in this case the issue is broad in scope because nothing has been specifically narrated. So if you do, no problem. And if you don't, inshallah, there's no problem. Because this is a different, you know, case. In terms of the first tashahud and you come up and you, and you raise the hands. So if you feel you want to raise the hands, inshallah, that's okay. And if you feel you shouldn't, then that's also okay. So there's two ways we can think about it. You can think, look, the imam is done with the first tashahud. So when I stand up, I'm not going to raise the hands. Or you could think, but this is my first tashahud. So I should still raise the hands. Different people will think about it differently. And therefore the Sheikh says this type of issues we say is broad in scope. So we don't, you know, tell people you shouldn't have raised the hands there when you raise the hands. Or you should have. We leave these type of issues, you know, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Another issue here is when do you raise the hand? Meaning, when we've spoken about the times, the point here is now, with regards to raising the hands and the takbir, which comes first? Is it at the same time? Or is it first Allahu Akbar and then you raise the hands? Or raise the hands and then Allahu Akbar? And again, you will find people doing it both ways. You will find some people that they raise their hands, Allahu Akbar, which means it's at the same time. Or Allahu Akbar and then they raise their hands. Or the other way around, they raise their hands, drop it, and then they say, Allahu Akbar. And I've seen this. You know, they first, for example, they start the salah. You see the imam raise the hands, he puts his hands on his chest, and then he says, Allahu Akbar. You understand? Again, what, what is the sunnah in this case? All of this have been narrated from the Prophet Different ways that he has done it. Right? So we find that he did it, where he first said the takbir, and then he raised the hand. And we find that he did it, he first raised the hand, and then said the takbir. And we find that he did it together. We find that he did it together. The one hadith I mentioned in the beginning, and I said that يَرْفَعُ يَدَيْهِ حَتَّى يُحَاذِي بِهِمَا مَنْكِبَيْهِ ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرِ Look at the wording of the hadith. He raised his hands in line with his shoulders, then he did the takbir. ثُمَّ Which means ثُمَّ huh? If it was far, then you could argue that it was a very... That, but but what, what does Tumma then tell us? That he raised the hands, put it down, and then said Allah. But, yeah. Which means it happened afterwards. Which means it happened, it was a separate action. It was not at the same time. That's what we get from Tumma. Had it been far, you could have argued that it was, it was very close together. But the Thumma will tell us, he, he raised his hands, put it down, and then said Allahu Akbar. Another hadith says, he raised his hands and down with his shoulders when he opened the salah. But no mention of that period is, it says when he opened the salah, which means 
So at the same time, or he said Allah Akbar and then raised the hands. Because when he opened the salah, he raised the hands. Which means he opened the salah and then raised. So he said Allahu Akbar and then raised. So that's the second case. The third hadith is in also in Bukhari. It says that he did takbir ma'arraf. He said Allahu Akbar with the raising of the hands. And look at how specific the Sahaba were when they narrated. How specific they chose their words. You understand? The one narration says he did it at the same time. The other one says he first raised the hands, then he did the takbir. And the other one says he first did the takbir and then raised the hands. Very specifically narrated. The point here again is, there's leeway, there's scope in this type of issues. Either way you do it is all correct. Because the Prophet he chopped and changed basically. And again, the best way to do it is to chop and change as well. Knowing that you are following the Prophet So when you do it, Allahu Akbar, and raise the hands, you should know that's how the Prophet did it. Do it at the same time, that's how he did it. And if you say Allahu Akbar, then raise it, or the other way around, that's how the Prophet did it. So you can do it knowing that he did it, then it becomes ibadah. Then it's not just something that just happened, by the way. It became you purposefully fulfilling a sunnah now. And for that you will get rewarded, inshaAllah. Any questions on this hadith? The next hadith is from Wa'il ibn Hujr radiallahu anhu. He said, Sallaytu ma'al Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama fawada'a yadahu al-yumna ala yadihi al-yusra ala sadrihi akhrajahu ibn Khuzayma. He says, I prayed with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he placed his right hand on his left hand on his chest. He placed his right hand on top of his left hand on, on his chest. Ala sadrihi. Ala sadrihi. So what's the issue here? The issue we are talking about is where do we place the hands? And again the ulama differed. You got the shafi'is which says just above the navel. You got the Hanafis and the Hanbalis, which says just below the navel. And you got the Malikis who have difference of opinion. Some of the Malikis says you stand with your hands hanging by your sides. Right? And some of the Malikis say no, on the chest. On the, on the chest. So basically above the navel side towards your chest. Right? Um... Now, this hadith is similar to another hadith that is found in Bukhari. But listen to the wording of the hadith in Bukhari. The wording says that Sahal ibn Sa'ad narrates that the people were instructed to place their right hand on their left hand in the salah. Upon the, in fact, it says on their left forearm in the salah, which is here. Right? But no mention of chest is made. And this hadith is where? In Sahih Bukhari. So everybody agrees on this hadith. And therefore the, 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 the view that says you stand with the hands on the sides is a very very weak view. Because it contradicts an authentic hadith. Which all the ulama agree is authentic. So to stand like this with your hands on the side is a contradiction of the sunnah. And it should never be done. Why do the Malikis have this view? There's also a difference of opinion over this. Some of them said that Imam Malik was injured and so he was seen standing like this. 
and then others followed him in that. Others said that they did not understand the context of what Imam Malik said. So there's a Maliki book called Al-Mudawwana, which is one of the main Maliki fiqh books, where the student of Imam Malik, Zabud Abdurrahman, he narrated from Malik and he would document everything Imam Malik said to him. So in this book what happened was is, he was asking Imam Malik questions. And he asked him about making salah, where you are leaning, for example, against a wall, or leaning on a stick. And Imam Malik would say, this dislike in a fard salah, but it's okay in a sunnah salah. Where you could lean on something. Right? Until he asked Imam Malik, what about leaning or placing your hands by your sides and, you know, like slouching, leaning on, on your sides or something to that effect. And Imam Malik said the same thing, is disliked for the fard salah, but allowed in the sunnah salah. So others, they took this and they said, Imam Malik then said, it's okay to stand with your hands by your sides. But the context does not say, actually, if you look at the context and what was said before that, it becomes clearer what was meant by Imam Malik. Also, in response to the Malikis is that Imam Malik himself, he has a book of hadith, which he compiled, called the Muwatta of Imam Malik. In this book, he has this hadith, that the Prophet ﷺ placed his right hand on his left forearm in the salah. So if, if the Imam narrates a hadith, it's impossible that he did not act upon a hadith. These two virtues not to act upon a hadith which he himself narrated in one of his own books. So we don't agree that that was his view. Latter-day Maliki scholars came with that view. But it's not from the sunnah of the Prophet So the issue here is, everybody agrees, or almost everybody, that it should be right hand on the left, or on the left forearm. The difference of opinion is where? Where do you place those hands? Is it below the navel, on the navel, above the navel, or on the chest? And again, this is where the, this is where the difference of opinion comes in amongst the, amongst the scholars. There is a hadith that speaks about the hands being below the navel. But it's a very weak hadith. It's a weak hadith. As for the hadith that we mentioned earlier, but placing it on the chest, it's also a weak hadith. It's also a weak hadith but it's not as weak as the other hadith where the hands are placed below the navel and therefore scholars said what's the most authentic is that you place the hands on the chest and this is more authentic than placing it below the navel it's just clear right so this is basically the issue that you place the hands Towards your chest. Right? And I always add in a way that's comfortable. On the chest, no problem. But what I'm saying is, you stand in a way that is also comfortable for you. So often what I've seen with people, brothers, is that they stand with their hands on the chest, but they stand very awkwardly. You know, in such an awkward manner where their hands are high up and they're standing very awkwardly in the salah. You understand? You also need to make yourself comfortable. So that you are standing in a comfortable manner. So if you're placing your hands on your chest and it's comfortable, no problem. But to stand, like I say, you, if you look, I like to look at people when they make salah to, to check, you know what. And you can see sometimes with the way they are standing, it's very awkward. Where their shoulders are hunched up just to get their hands on their chest. So just to get their hands there, they are standing in such a manner that 
it's as if, you know, you feel sorry for the brother that is making salah because of the way that he's standing man, at times. So what I'm saying is, the best is to keep it above the navel, on or just below the chest. On or just below the chest. Right? And again, these are issues where we should not be fighting over. We should not be, you know, forcing people and saying, why is your hands not up here? You should know that the scholars differ over this. And the hadith is also weak. There is weakness in the hadith. Had the hadith been in Bukhari and Muslim, then we could have said, look brothers, this hadith is without a doubt authentic. We should be standing like this. But the fact that there is weakness in it, and weakness in the other one, this, this is where other ulama said, look, there's leeway in these type of matters. These type of matters are more broad in scope. And you should not be, you know, ruling with an iron fist. You must stand like this. This ulama differed over these ahadith. Because they are not, the hadith is in the book of Abu Khuzayma. It's not in Bukhari or Muslim. And like I said, the scholars, they differ over the authentication of, um, of the hadith. Right? In terms of placing the hands, then I think we did explain this, that there are three ways to place the hands. Either on top of the hand, on top of the wrist, or on top of the forearm. All three have been also, also have been narrated. Right? So, in fact, on this issue, Ibn Uthaymin says, if you are to stand like this, then it's also difficult to raise the hands to the chest. Because now it becomes awkward. So if you're going to stand like this, to keep it on the chest, then you start to stand like this. You know? And that's what, that's what this is where I'm saying, towards the chest area. So that you at least relaxed in the salah. And perhaps all of this is considered your chest. Right? All of this is considered the chest. So this is a no. This is now your neck side. Right? This is no. Standing with the hands here, on the side and the waist, is not the sunnah. Some people put it on the left because they say your heart is on the left. Females, this is all inauthentic. There's no narration that, that speaks about this. There's no authentic hadith that mentions any of this. So to put it on the left because you're female, no. To put it on the left because your heart's on the left-hand side, that's not the deal. At the end of the day, that is not considered an, an evidence. You understand? In fact, Ibn Uthaymin says, if you wanted to put it on a position where, he says it would be better to put it on your head because that's where your brain is. You know, as opposed to putting it by your heart. But what like what benefit is there in putting your hand by your heart in the salah? You're supposed to be thinking in the salah as well. So why don't you place your hands on your head? You know, and like this we could be using all type of analogies because <coughs> this is just an analogy. There's no actual hadith um, that comes from this. The hikmah in placing the right on the left and keeping it on your chest or just below the chest is that some scholars said this is like a sign of humility. That you stand like this in a humble, you know, humble way in front of, in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, looking down. That's how we stand in the salah. It's a, it's a sign of humility that we stand, you know, focused. As opposed to your hands being hanging around or your hands being in the way, in the awkward. It's, you are standing in a comfortable way with your head lowered. Standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, unified in the soft. Unified in the soft. This is a type of, in this, this again is, is derived. This is what people, this is what the ulama came up with. It's a sign of khushu'. It's a sign of humility. This is what they derived and what they saw within, um, in, in their, their wisdom basically, basically of it. 
But why do we do it? Because the Prophet said you should do it. Or because he did it like that. The hikmah is, some will agree and some will not agree. Some will say, yes, I agree, that makes sense. And some will say, that doesn't have to make sense to me. That where's the humility in that? Or where's the khushu in that? Are you with me? At the end of the day, we do it because the Prophet said you must do it. Or the Prophet because he did it. And like the famous incident with Aisha, عنها, when they asked her, why do you make qada of fasting? Like a woman has a hayat. If you miss the fast, she has to make it up. But why do you not make qada of your salah? The salah is more important than fasting. That week you don't make salah, you don't make qada for the salah, it's gone. What was her response? What was that? Her response was very simple. She says, we were instructed to make qada of the fasting and we were not instructed to make qada of the, of the salah. It's not about the wisdom and what we think makes sense and that's what, the, that's what we were told to do by the Prophet and that's what we are doing. And he did not tell us to do that, so we don't do it. End of, end of discussion. طيب, the next hadith is from Ubadah ibn Samit عنه, he said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said لا صلاة لمن لم يقرأ بأم القرآن There is no salah for the one who does not recite the mother of the Qur'an. This hadith in Bukhari and Muslim. In another narration of Ibn Hibban in Ad-Dar Qutni, the salah does not count for the one who does not recite within it Fatihat al-Kitab, the opening of the book. And in another narration of Ahmad, Abu Dawood, Al-Tirvid and Ibn Hibban, the Prophet ﷺ said, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَقْرَؤُونَ خَلْفَ إِمَامِكُمْ He said, Perhaps you are reciting behind your imam. And we said yes, and he said, لا تفعلوا إلا بفاتحة الكتاب Do not do that except with the فاتحة الكتاب فإنه لا صلاة لمن لم يقرأ بها Because there is no salah for the one who does not recite the, the فاتحة. Now, what does this mean? No salah means no salah. This is general. Whether it's a fard salah or a sunnah salah, whether that salah is ruku and sujood, if it's a salah, it needs to have the fatiha. Like janazah, it must be fatiha. As for the sajda to tilawah and sajda to shukr, there's no fatiha because it's not a salah. It's not a salah and you're not standing and praying. So of course that is obviously an exception. Um, the Umm al-Quran is of course the Surah al-Fatiha and we explain this. Umm al-Quran is referred to as the mother of the book because all of the, all of the, the meanings of the Quran is, it is found in Surah al-Fatiha. And last week we spoke about this in a lot more detail when we did the small tafsir of Surah Fatiha. Um, the second narration said that the Salah does not count if no Fatiha has been recited. This is similar to the first narration. Yani, that if you made salah and you did not recite the fatiha, that salah is as if it was not made in any case. It was as if it was never done. Meaning it's, it's not accepted. It is completely rejected. The third narration says, perhaps some of you are reciting behind your imam. Meaning what? That the imam is obviously leading and the people are reading with. The people are reading with the imam. Right? And they said, yes, we do this. 
So let's say you reciting Amma Tasa'arun Ali Naba Il Azim, and the people who know it, they're reading with. Right? Which is a common occurrence in Tarawih, Yasra, Yasin, and everybody reads with, and so forth. And then Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, La taf'alu, don't do this. You should not do this. Illa bi fatihat al kitab, except with the fatiha. Except with the, with the fatiha. Because there is no salah for the one who does not recite the fatiha. Understand? So which means you are not allowed to recite behind the imam except for the fatiha, according to this hadith. According to this hadith. Tayyib, benefits of these narrations. Number one, again, the virtue of the fatiha. Right? The virtue is the greatest surah in the Quran, and there is no salah except that you recite the fatiha. Right? If it's not recited, one salah is batil. Your salah is batil, it has to be repeated. The fatiha is a rukun of the salah. The fatiha is a rukun of the, of the salah. In fact, another hadith says, every salah which, wherein there is no fatiha recited, فَهِيَ خِدَاج that, that salah is incomplete. That salah is incomplete. Does this have to be done in every rak'ah? Every rak'ah, or at least once in the salah. Okay? According to, if I believe, remember correctly, Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, is of the view, that it only has to be done in one rak'ah. And the rest of the rak'ah, you can do tasbih. Right? But this is a very weak view. If we look at the hadith, there is no salah for the one who does not recite Fatiha in kitab. So technically, if you recite the Fatiha, there is salah now, isn't it? Right? If you just took that hadith, you could argue this point. That look, I did recite the Fatiha this one, so I applied the hadith. But, there is another hadith wherein the Prophet you know, the, the guy who made salah incorrectly, and he was taught salah and so forth, it was said to him, you should do this in every rak'ah, in your entire salah. Meaning, whatever was taught to him, this is how it has to be done in every part of the salah. So it doesn't only apply to the first rak'ah, the fatiha, the ruku'ah, and the sujood, and this, and the, the tasbih that you make, it has to be done in every rak'ah. So yes, the first hadith, maybe you could, you know, derive it like that and say, look, I did decide it once, so they salah for me. Whereas the second, or this hadith over here explains it further and says, this has to be done in every, in every rak'ah. We're going to get to that issue. That is the big issue. That's the big issue. Okay, and that, that is basically the main issue that, uh, that, that we have to discuss, and that is where the ulama differed greatly. Classical and latter-day scholars, they are still differing over this issue. Okay, what's the issue? The issue is, if you pray behind an imam, does his fatiha count for yours or not? Does the fatiha of the imam count for those that of the ma'mumin or not? Those who are praying behind the Imam. And then what about the as I said? So the first view is that the Fatiha is not wajib. The Fatiha is not wajib for anybody. 
That's one jewel, what about? And what was the proof? Allah says in the Quran, فَقْرَأُوا مَا تَيَسَّرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ You must decide what's easy of the Quran for you. Right? Now this is very weak because of the hadith we are reading that we mentioned. That there's no salah for the one who does not recite the Fatiha. So that's a very weak view, we don't accept that. The second view is that recitation of the Fatiha is fard upon the Imam and the Munfarid. Who's the Munfarid? The one who makes Allah by himself. So Jama'ah, you're making by yourself, then you have to recite the Fatiha. And of course for the Imam, but not for the Ma'moon. Meaning the one behind the Imam doesn't have to recite the Fatiha. Rather they say it's a Sunnah for him. If he does it, it's good. If he doesn't do it, no problem. And they say that the Fatiha of the Imam will count for his. And they don't differ whether it is a loud prayer or a soft prayer. They just say if it's Jama'ah, Imam's Fatiha counts for yours, done. If you recite as well, it's a Sunnah, but you don't have to. Right? Their proof is, مَنْ كَانَ لَهُ إِمَامٌ فَقِرَاءَةُ الْإِمَامٌ لَهُ قِرَاءَةٌ Whomsoever has an Imam, then the, the recitation of the Imam is his recitation. But this hadith is weak. So that view also, we have an issue with. The second view is similar, but has a bit more detail. And that is the recitation of the Fatiha is fought for the Imam, of course, and for the Ma'moom, for those who are following the Imam in the soft prayers. So you got Zuhr and Asr, the Imam recites softly, those behind him, they must read it, because it's a soft prayer. Or in the third and fourth rak'at of Isha, or the third rak'at of Maghrib, when the Imam reads softly, you must read it softly as well. Right? Or, if he's reciting loud and you cannot hear him. He's reciting loudly, but he's far away. There's no mics. You cannot hear what he's saying. Then you have to recite the Fatiha. So this opinion is based upon what? You hearing the Imam. If you hear him recite the Fatiha, then it counts for you. If you cannot hear him, or it's a soft rak'ah or soft salah, you have to recite the Fatiha. Understand this? But when it's a loud prayer, like the Maghrib and Isha and Fajr, and you hear the Imam, then the Ma'moon does not have to, not, not have to read the Fatiha. Is this understood? What's the proof? The proof is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-A'raf, وَإِذَا قُرِئَ الْقُرْآنُ فَاسْتَمِعُوا لَهُ وَأَنْصِتُوا لَعَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ The proof is that Allah said, when the Qur'an is being recited, you must be quiet and listen to the Qur'an. Perhaps Allah will have mercy on you. Understand? So it means as the Imam is reading, you have to be quiet. You cannot read with him. You must listen and therefore his, his recitation will, um, will count for you. Right? They also use some reasoning and they say that if the Imam recites the Fatiha and you've listened to the Fatiha and you say Amin, you said Amin, right? So you are just like the Imam in that case. And they used an example from the Quran where Musa alayhi salam, Surah Yunus, verse 88, Musa alayhi salam made a dua. رَبَّنَا إِنَّكَ آتَيْتَ فِرْعَوْنَ وَمَلَأَهُ زِيَتَهُ It's an indi dua. Anyways, 
What then happened was is Allah responded by saying Qad Your du'as were accepted The two of you Referring to who? Musa and Harun Both of your du'as have been accepted Right? But yet who made the du'a? Musa made the du'a by himself What was Harun doing? He was sitting there saying Amin So Allah considered it the du'a of both of them and not just that of Musa. So they use this and they say, look, the Imam's reciting, you say Amin, the recitation comes to both of you. You get this analogy that they come with? And they also say, the other reason that they use is, what's the difference then between reciting loud and soft? If you must still recite with the Imam and the Imams also read, there is no difference between loud and soft prayer. The loud prayer you listen, the soft prayer you recite. But if you're still reciting and the Imam is reciting and he's reciting loud or soft, what's the difference then? What's the point in him reciting loudly? This is the other type of reasoning that they use. This is the view of some of the ulama, like Shaykh al-Islam, Tamiyyah, Ibn al-Si'idi and others. The fourth view is the view that says whether the Imam recited loud or soft, the Ma'mum must also recite it. Everybody must recite the Fatiha. If the Imam is reciting it loud, you must also recite it loud. And this is the view of Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah. That the, the, the Fatiha must be recited by one and all. Right? What's their proof? Their proof is this hadith that we are discussing now. That there is no salah for the one who does not recite the Fatiha. And the response to the, the view of the previous opinion, these are the two strong opinions. Right? The two strongest opinions. The response is, that the ayah when Allah says, when the Qur'an is recited, you have to be quiet and listen. That is general. That's in a general sense. But the Fatiha is something specific based on this hadith. Based on this hadith. And also the other hadith that we mentioned, which is, where the Prophet said, are you reciting behind your imam? They said, yes. They said, don't do that except for Surah Fatiha. Which means he encouraged them to recite it behind the Imam, with the Imam. Understand this? And then this is the fourth view. And Ibn Uthaymin says, this is the stronger view. Based on these evidences. And to be honest, he goes into a lot more detail than that. On this issue. And books have been written on this issue. Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, has a book on this issue. Al-Qira'atu Khalf al-Imam. That's the book's name. Recitation of behind the Imam. He's got a whole book on this. Ibn al-Qayyim speaks about this in detail in his books and other scholars. Hence I'm saying it's an issue which is deep and it's a lot of argumentation back and forth. This hadith is weak, that hadith is authentic, that's weak, we can't accept that, that doesn't make sense, this and so forth. So much so some scholar says this fourth view is the safest view. That if you just recite it, it's safe. If you don't recite it, there's a fear, eh? there's no salah for the one who doesn't recite the fatiha. Or the other argument we could use is, it's an easier view not to recite it. And what does the hadith of Aisha say? The Prophet always chose the easiest view when, as long as it was permissible. Right? So which, which one do you go with? Either you can say, look, we take the easier one. The Imam recited it, we heard it, we said, Amin, that counts. Or you can say, let's be on the safe side. Because the Prophet said there is no salah for the one who doesn't recite the Fatiha. So we just recite the Fatiha. You understand? Another issue I'll add is 
the hadith that we mentioned last about don't do that except with the Fatiha. Don't recite with the Imam. Other scholars said that hadith is mansukh, meaning it's abrogated. So what happened was is the Prophet again, another incident happened and he said, are any of you reciting with me? Did, after the Salah, he turned and he said, did any of you recite with me? And I said, yes. And he said, this is why I was contended with Quran. Meaning, he was making mistakes. He was getting confused in the Salah, the Prophet And immediately he turned to me and said, are you guys reciting with me? And they said, yes. And the Hadith says that after this, everybody then stopped reciting with the, with, with the Imam. So those who take this Hadith and says, we don't recite the Fatiha, even, even the Fatiha with the Imam. Because the previous hadith we mentioned is not abrogated. Can you see why this, this is an issue with, you know, there's a lot of ikhtilaf. And you'll find one scholar saying you must, another scholar saying you don't have to. Imam recited, you heard it, it counts. Understand? Even amongst the Sahaba, they differed. So which view do you take? The safer view, the easier view? The safest view is a safer option. But if you firmly believe that it counts as, a, as, as, as your recitation, that you don't want to make it hard upon yourself and you need to listen to the recitation, then you, recite, then you don't recite the Fatiha. Because again, the other issue is when do you read the Fatiha? If you are going to read it with the Imam. And again what happens is, either you recite it with him, Right? Or you take the hadith which I quoted which says you don't decide with the Imam. So then when do you read it? When the Imam says, well, amin, then the people read the Fatiha. But now the issue comes in, what does the Imam do? Does the Imam pause and let the people make the Fatiha? And this is what the Shafi'is do. The Imam has a pause. Right? After he says, well, amin, he pauses for a time and then he decides the next surah. That pause is for the people to decide the, the Fatiha. Take Ibn Uthaymin who says you must decide the Fatiha. He says it's a bid'ah to make that pause. Because the Prophet never did that pause. But he says you must do the Fatiha. So he says if the Imam recites, he doesn't give you a pause. He recites. And you still have to read. He says you, you read the Fatiha. You have sabr, even though he's reading. Others will say you don't read. You must listen. <coughs> and like this, the scholars differed immensely over this issue. <coughs> What's the correct view? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows this. It's a very difficult one to... to the scholars don't get it. I mean, exactly. Like I said, classical, latter-day, the opinions vary. For me, there's the two views are the strongest, the last two views. Which is, in the loud prayers, there's a difference. So some say, you don't have to. But when he's reciting softly, you must. That, that, we agree, that we can basically agree on. The difference is, when the Imam is reciting loudly, do I have to or not? And this is where the, the, the difference basically comes in. Again, Allah knows best. I myself, I think, in this case, you take the safer view. Because your salah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's safer to decide it. If you decided it, alhamdulillah. Can anybody blame you for deciding it? 
there could be no, you know, you're not harming your salah in any way. But it seems that sometimes there's a disturbance. I've encountered some people because of that pause. Now they are reciting. And the imam is doing good, but you are trying to concentrate on the imam. But he needs to recite softly to himself. You understand? They recite softly, but it's, you can still hear what they're doing, you know, you, you, because you understand what they're so, but it's, he shouldn't be affecting my salah, you know? Definitely, yeah. So, so the, the air is with him there, you understand? Yeah. The air is definitely with him there. In this case, like I said, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky one. Um... Allah knows best. I, I see the, 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 the arguments for both sides and they both make a lot of sense. Um, and therefore, like I say, the issue is if you believe that's the view, then you follow the view. And if you don't believe you need to decide it, you don't decide it. If you believe, look, I'd rather be on the safe side, then be on the safe side. I think there is no salah without the Fatiha. So, for me, personally, I think... The Imam has made the Fatiha and the Salah. Hmm. We are joined. But but the Hadith also says there is no Salah for the one who does not recite the Fatiha. What's that specific Arabic? Liman lam yaqra the Fatiha. Liman. 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 For that one. For the one. Who does not recite it. So that's why it's, it's for each person. For each person. And not just for the Imam. And that's where the difference comes in. Does the Imam count or not? And that is where the, the dispute is very, very great, I would say. Allah knows best. Allah, 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 Allah,